You found it. The no-nonsense, no-script podcast you've been waiting for. Real people on real issues. Welcome to Dynamic Independence. The home of logic, reason, and common sense. Let's do it. Thank you for joining us today. I'm Johnny Anderson, and I'm joined today by Bruce Adams and Marty Foster. I'm going to attempt to be a little bit more calm today. Yesterday, I got a little bit unhinged, uh, so I do apologize. So I'm going to try and keep my cool today because I've had a lot of time between yesterday and today to reflect on everything that we covered. Uh, I rang up GP on the phone about two hours ago and uh, double-checked with him. He's uh, he's good. Uh, he, he, was a little, uh, he was a little distraught last night, so... Um, you know, called just to make sure he was all right. So yeah, he's uh, he's he's all good. But we're gonna try and go a different way with it. We're gonna talk about some uh, some stuff that's going on in the UK tonight. And tonight we've got, of course, we've got Bruce joining us every day. We've got Marty with us this evening. Marty, how are you? I'll start with you first. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. How are you guys? I'm doing fantastic. Bruce, how are you? I didn't forget. I'm uh, I'm, I'm today. I'm actually pretty stoked, and that's because. Uh... I have the SpaceX launch in the background as we're recording this, so that, uh-huh. that's quite yeah, we got it up. We we got it up in the room here. We uh, we're uh, we're going to be watching that as it happens. This is quite a day. I have to agree. This is this is quite an important day. I want to start with uh, some things that are going on in the United Kingdom. So let's start with the recent issues surrounding Dominic Cummings. This is out of uh, Business Insider in the U.S. So Boris Johnson is tumbling in the polls after ignoring voter demands to sack Dominic Cummings for breaking the lockdown rules. The insider saying that he's dropping in the polls. And he's saying that he's losing credibility. The British public is quickly turning on Boris Johnson. And uh, he refuses to sack Cummings for breaking the lockdown rules by driving 260 miles from London to Durham. So what's going on over there with uh, with Mr. Cummings uh, as it relates to the cabinet? What, what's the deal with him? Dominic Cummings is a very strange character. Uh, he's seen by Boris Johnson as a highly intelligent, innovative, free thinker. But at the end of the day, the media has has just decided to destroy him. They're doing everything they can. There were other cases before the... Um, restrictions on travel were lifted. Several Labour MPs and significant political figures, not from the Conservative Party, broke the rules and were caught out. But that was soon forgotten. But because Dominic Cummings is supporting the the Conservative government and Boris Johnson, the mainstream media have just gone to town on him. That's what's happening. He has made that mistake that we've talked about many, many times about doubling down to compound things rather than just give the simple explanation and say, okay, I did it and and I'm sorry. He's just compounded things by making more and more ridiculous excuses like, oh, he had to go and do the car journey to test his eyesight. At the end of the day, he's got an autistic child And when you have a a child with autism, finding childcare can be extremely difficult. They have to be used to the person who is going to look after them. So when he and his wife thought they were going to become, they took their child all the way to Durham so that the child could be with the grandparents. Now, there's, there's a lot wrong with that. There's a great deal wrong with it. One is they're infected. 
and they're going to visit elderly relatives or they felt thought they might be infected and they 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 still went to visit elderly relatives mm-hmm. that's 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 not right but the the travel restrictions themselves they were so poorly worded at the press conference when Boris you know drew back on some of the restrictions and and lifted some of them that people didn't understand what they were supposed to do anyway so this is a storm in a teacup it's going to go on the liberal left press and the liberal left tv stations and news channels will continue to beat him with a stick that they that they can do and until they get a result but the general voter doesn't really care what the hell they've done it's just more white noise from the liberal left, the anti-Brexit campaigners, the Ramonas, just to punish Dominic and just to uh, weaken Boris's position if they possibly can. But people like me who want, you know, wanted Brexit and voted for Boris Johnson on those on that basis, we don't care about this. I tweeted to James O'Brien earlier because he was uh, he said something in about liars. And that's his tactic. Anyone who disagrees with him is either stupid or a liar. But I've got a news flash for him. We know that virtually all politicians are liars, but we have no choice but to put up with the politicians we have because of a two-party system. And we vote for the ones that promise to deliver what we think is best for the country. So yeah, Dominic Cummings went to see his parents. I don't care. You know, this is not uh, the first time, obviously, that uh, that this has happened. In the beginning of this, we talked about was it Neil Ferguson? He he broke quarantine as well. Was that the was that who it was? Yeah, Neil Ferguson was one of the scientists, medics advising the government on how to conduct lockdown uh-huh. and to to fight COVID. But he chose to uh, have his married lover visit him. Um, and he had a long car journey involved as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, whilst he thought he had the had the virus, so he, he was risking infecting her husband when she returned to the marital home. So yeah, government and government bodies are all they they are full of hypocrites. Doesn't matter what colour ribbon they they wear on the rosette at the um, at, at the election night. Politicians are hypocritical. You know, do as I say, not not as I do. Yes, that's true. And you know, it's another. It's this is another aspect of just political football, isn't it? Right. You say this is just white noise, but as time progresses, the the liberals. Uh, well, excuse me. I don't want to say the liberal. Uh, I don't want to say liberals I, because I, in in England that's something different. So, or the UK that's something different. So, I, I don't want to say that. But the Labour Party, okay, the the Labour Party, they're looking somehow to try and recoup some of those losses, right, for the next election. So they're they're doing anything they can right now to grab at any straw they can to try and make the, the Tories look as bad as possible, right? Isn't that what this is? It's just point scoring. That's exactly what it is. But don't get confused. The UK Liberal Democrat Party are worse than the Labour Party. They are they have had, they've suffered the biggest losses um, overall, I believe, the, the way the party was almost wiped out. So, I believe that was due to them taking the the hard stance on a rejection of Article Fifty. If they were to be, if if Joe Swenson was to be uh, put in as as PM, right? If they would have won that, yeah, 
<clears throat> yeah, she didn't stand a snowball's chance in hell of ever getting elected, but that was their stance, and it certainly didn't do them any favours. Yes, they, they were going to revoke Article 50 if they got into power. The nearest hope would have been a coalition. But as we know, Boris and the Conservative gained a significant majority, and the Liberals and Labour suffered greatly at the hands of the voters. So yes, the media, full of either you know Liberal Party or Liberal Democrat member members of the Liberal Democrat Party or members of the Labour Labour Party, are desperate to hit Boris with anything they can. Now the bloke doesn't do himself any favours. Actually, he keeps making these mistakes, and Cummings is supposed to be his advisor. So you know, I, I'm I'm concerned that. He's getting very bad advice. And whilst I don't want the Liberal left to gain a victory, I think Boris needs to seriously think about, you know, how much emphasis is uh, and how much attention is paid to the advice of this man Cummings. I do recall seeing him right, right when Boris was diagnosed, right? Right when he tested positive. I remember that that scene of Dominic Cummings running out of number 10 down the alleyway to try and get away. Was he ever diagnosed, Dominic Cummings? Did, did he ever come down with any of this? Was he ever tested uh, and test positive? For, I'm sure he was tested, but did he ever test positive for this? I'm not at all sure. I'm sorry to say uh, I, I don't know whether he's okay. tested positive well, or not. Well, let me ask you this. Let me ask you this. Keep <clears throat> keeping with him here for a second. Last question on Cummings. Do you think Boris will sack him? Because it's just political pressure that's being applied here. It's just political pressure. It's bad press. Like you said, you got the media all over it. So do you think it's enough to get them to, when I say get them, I mean the cabinet, to get pressure on Boris to, to oust Cummings to try and force him out? It all depends on how integral Cummings is to all of the other things that are going on for the government at the moment. COVID-19 and dealing with it is one thing, but we have the uh, Brexit negotiations going on. The minister, last name Frost, he'll be the next target for the MSM. He'll be the next one that they try to do the hatchet job on, simply because he's the man dealing with the EU Commission and trying to negotiate how we will exit fully um, and all the things that that entails. So it all depends on how integral Dom Dominic Cummings is to uh, the furtherment of that endeavour and all the other things that we've got going on for the country. You know, everyone's just focused on one piece of news at the moment, the, the lockdown and COVID-19. There are other things going on. And it all depends on how important Dominic Cummings' advice and his planning is for those things as to whether or not Boris will sack him. Well, we all know which side the mainstream media is on when it comes to Brexit, don't we? So anything that they can do as far as playing a part in throwing a wrench in the works for this cabinet, I think is in their best interest, although it's not good for the country. Would you agree? They don't really care what's good for the country. They're, they've got their, you know, the, the people in who run the media, the people who own the media are fabulously wealthy. Those that run it at the higher levels are comfortable in their middle-class London bubbles. And the journalistic foot soldiers simply aspire to that level. So they don't care whether it's good or bad for the country. All they care about is how many viewers watch their news bulletins, how many people 
by their their rags. Let's um, let's jump over to this. This this is interesting. A top scientific advisor to the UK government says the two meter social distancing rule based on very fragile evidence. Bruce, you and I talked yesterday about the origins of this this social distancing thing and how this wormed is not not the historical aspect of it because there are instances in, in the past where that's been uh, a standard practice but the way that this particular practice now has wormed our way into policy it was developed by a 14 year old kid and the father of this 14 year old kid was buddy buddies with a couple of people in the federal government in the US so they floated this idea all the way up the lines and this is how we've um, We've ended up with it. You wouldn't believe that, would you, Marty? That's so crazy. You just wouldn't believe it. But we ended up with a 14-year-old kid explaining all this and wargaming this out and mapping this out, and this is how it would work. But Professor Robert Dingwall, a sociologist from Nottingham Trent University and a member of the government advisory group, said the two-meter distance was unnecessary. A quote from him, he says, the World Health Organization recommends a one-meter distance. Denmark has since adopted it as of the beginning of last week. If you probe around the recommendations of distance in Europe, you will find that a lot of countries have also gone for this really on the basis of a better understanding of the scientific evidence around the possible transmission of infection. The distance may be a non-scientific estimate that just caught on in countries around the world. As top researchers say that there is not solid evidence to back it up. So is this necessary? After what we covered yesterday with the 14-year-old kid coming up with this plan initially, in the which, okay, fair enough. I mean, you, you can speak to that, I'm sure. But now that you've got other people in the scientific community, especially ones that are now in advisory positions to cabinets around the world and major countries, should we relook at this? Should, should we abolish this? I mean, we kind of get the feeling at this point that social distancing is not about the pandemic itself. This is just about an attitude of control at this point. Same thing with the mask wearing. You talk to anyone in the medical profession that's done this for a long time, and they're all telling me the same thing. These things are completely pointless. So what's your take on this? Well, obviously, given the way you framed the question, you want me to say, yeah, it's stupid. Let's stop immediately. But I'm not going to say that. No, I I want you to say that. I I don't... Honestly, the way I forget, no, forget how I frame stuff. I, I try to frame just, it as you best just I can. Laugh, You should just laugh that off now. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I forget how I frame stuff. Forget how I frame stuff. I, I, I genuinely value your opinion as I have, uh, you know, since what, how long have we known each other right. now? Over 10 years. So I, I value Quite, your opinion, yeah. whether you agree or not. Amazing, yeah, whether um, you agree or not, I, I like to hear it. Yeah, well, my opinion on this is, no, there hasn't been any scientific study that, that can prove that the two meters social distancing has had any significant effect more than a one meter distance might have had. But if we if we look at the exhalation miasma, the, the plume of exhalation that exists around your head uh, as you're breathing in and out, that extends out to about a meter before it becomes indetectable from air. Yes? Okay, so as you're breathing in and out, uh, the oxygen, because we only use 16% of the oxygen that we breathe in. So uh, mm-hmm. our exhalations are about 20% oxygen, 40% carbon dioxide, and 20% or however much that makes up the rest of it, nitrogen plus other elements that are present in air, normal breathable air. So as we're breathing in and out normally, not heavily, not exerted, uh, you know, from cardio, just normal breathing, our exhalation plume is is about a meter from our heads. 
So if we stay two metres away from everybody, the chances of passing water droplets and, you know, infecting someone else is dramatically reduced. So, you know, I don't care whether a 14-year-old kid thought of it. If it is stopping the infection and allowing people to go out and conduct normal, you know, their normal daily business, then for now, until the RA is where we need it to be, let's keep doing it. Apart from that, a friend of ours has just come back from Brussels um, where they were living, and she's made me some really nice masks. They're gingham. And um, I was looking forward to wearing them on Friday. So, you know, I, I'm going to wear a mask just for the sake of it. I haven't up till now, but I will just because she's made them for me. Now you can laugh. <laughs> no, I wasn't going to laugh. Bruce, you want to weigh in on that? Yeah, I, I, I've said it before, and, and my position on this is not changed. As far as the masks, whether they are or, or the social distancing, as far as that's concerned, whether it works or not, I really don't care. My point is, is I don't want you right on top of me. So. Just as a standard societal thing, that let's just continue this because I I really don't want you on top of me. Even if it's just the the one meter, that you know, three feet away, I'm good with that. That that's fine. Just keep that as a standard, <laughs> whether it's for virus or not. I, I I'm good with that. You want a uh, a personal bubble, right? Like a personal safe space. Is it, yeah, yeah. Like you, you're one of these yeah, safe like space that, people. Yeah. Is this is this how it is? But not uh, not safe space. I just I, I just. Personal value space. that distance. Personal space, yes. Yeah. I, I value All right, that. I got you. I got you. But um, I, I don't. I've, I've just been clued up to a guy called, and the second name is a really difficult pronunciation. Um, I believe in Japanese, you pronounce every vowel as it is said. So Yushiro Kawa Oeo of the University of Wisconsin um, published a paper in March in 2020. It was called Heroes and Villains. And he's a virologist. And what he was saying is that, well, there's, there's several things that are interesting in what he said in, in the paper he wrote. There are believed to be 10 to the 31 viruses known to man. So there's a lot of viruses out there and we're breathing them in and out all the, all the time and they're having no significant effect on our, on our health. However, certain viruses which cause the cytokine storm where you've got this this rush of um, anti-inflammatory and antibodies to the affected areas, such as the lungs, which brings on pneumonia. If we don't have that interaction between human beings, and, and if we're kept indoors, where we're not getting the right amount of sunlight for vitamin D, where supermarkets aren't providing us with fresh food like they were because everyone is stuck in eating from their freezers. So you've got a drop in vitamin C, you've got a drop in zinc. You become actually more susceptible to you know, your immune system being overwhelmed by being on lockdown. So at least by going outside uh, and maintaining a two meters distance from people, a lot of those things can be combated. But we spoke about vaccination at length and, and have done right, right the way from the beginning of this, did you know that vaccination for mumps, or sorry, not vaccination, uh, early infection with the mumps virus protects against ovarian cancer in adulthood? Uh, I did likewise, not know that. I did not know likewise, that. That's interesting. Measles, you know, German measles infection, there's a lower case or lower cases of lymphoid leukemia in adults who have had measles. So some viruses 
uh, some naturally forming viruses seem to help the body cope with other conditions in later life. Now, our belief, I think I can say this for all three of us, our belief is that COVID-19 isn't a naturally occurring virus. It's a it, it's a genetically engineered... Frankenstein. Well, well, it's, it's an experiment, isn't it? Whether it was an experiment yeah. to weapon, weaponize SARS or whether it was let's create the meanest, badass SARS we can and then see if we can fight it. That's my generous side of it. That's that's me being generous to um, to the scientists that, that allowed this monstrosity to be released upon us. So, yeah, the two metres distance thing, if it allows us for now to live life normally until we get the R-rate. The town where I live uh, is on its third day of no no further cases and no deaths. So it's a fairly large city and there's been no reported cases of COVID-19 and no deaths now for three days. So that, that that's moving in the right direction. So the, the closer we can get to that around the rest of the country, the sooner it is we can get back to normal and start hugging our friends and shaking hands with people that we meet and getting back to as normal as, air quote, they allow us to. Mm-hmm. Speaking of that, as you brought it up, you were talking about vaccinations there for a second. So let's talk about something that came up this morning, and I've got a lot of people sending this over to me. And so I, I want to get into this, right? This is something that's going to come out. It's called Pass. okay? Pass. What is Pass? The UK introduces a digital health passport to monitor travel and health of the population. The UK government is going to roll out a new digital health passport to monitor nearly every aspect of citizens' lives in the name of strengthening public health management. The British cybersecurity firm VST Enterprises, in partnership with the UK government, developed an application called Pass to track your COVID-19 test history and immunoresponse and other relevant health information using a proprietary matrix code called VCODE. So the Pass website bills the tech as the world's most secure digital health passport built on patented technology awarded the seal of excellence by the European Commission and being used by various United Nations projects. This will assign... It's amazing what this thing can do. I find it very coincidental that, what was it, last week, Bill Gates was meeting with Boris Johnson and now all of a sudden this is rolling out? That's just... I'm not going to get into conspiracy theories, but I'm just looking at possible dots that could be connected here. So assign any form of information to your own V-code securely, okay? Your V-code can store anything from identity details in case of emergency contact information health records, payment methods, car registration numbers, business card details, social media links, and much more, all from the same code. See, it's going to be everything. It's going to entail every aspect of your life. The company states that the technology will allow people to go back to work, quote, safely, suggesting the technology could be mandatory in order to return to work. As a secure digital health passport called Pass, it displays a certified COVID-19 test result to the user's health and immunoresponse using a secure biometric gateway, meaning your fingerprint, you'll have to use fingerprints in order to uh, to get into it, allowing individuals to return to work and life safely. So it will be bio- biometrically accessed on a mobile phone or held on a key fob or RFID. And it provides a unique authenticated gateway for government and health services and businesses to ensure a safe work environment. So these particular individuals will have the readers. So you'll be able to read those things. So instead of just 
going through and, and, you know, stating whatever it is, you'd have to hand over that information and they would have to scan that, whatever official would have to scan that and check that out. So essentially what we've done is we have moved papers, please, to the modern age. That's what we've done. And this is something that Bill Gates has been touting for a long time, something that he calls immunity passports, although this is obviously something different because it's called, you know, a COVID pass. So it's not the same thing. So the Red Strike Group and its partner, Manchester-based cybersecurity firm VST Enterprises, is delivering a groundbreaking digital passport solution to governments, healthcare organizations, sports federations, see, leagues and clubs around the world. So this is probably something you're going to need to fill in the blank. So fill in the blank means attach it to whatever you want. You can go into a bar if you have this app and it has the right information on it. You can travel if you have this app and it has the right information on it. You can go to a football game if you have this app and the right information is on it. You see where all this is going? It's a matter of absolutely dominating over every aspect in your life. We just named everything that was going to be on that particular application. Now, they might make it a program where you opt in first. Either way, this is not saying. All it's saying is, at this point, is they're going to roll this out. They're not saying exactly who's going to have to take this. But eventually, my guess is it's probably going to be um, mandatory on all phones. But then again, you have to manage how are you going to have to you know, get everybody in the, uh, in the market of getting a phone. So yes, like I said, I've, I've had a bunch of people send this stuff to me today. And so I, I want to talk about it. This is shockingly, I'm seeing this in the UK first. Like I said, I find it just a little bit coincidental that, I mean, I've heard Bill Gates talking about immunity passports before. And now all of a sudden this is being rolled out in the UK after like 14 days after he has a meeting with Boris Johnson. So now all of a sudden this is here. So I bet you if you start digging around and you find out where a lot of this funding came from, I bet you it'll, it'll probably lead back to his foundation. What's your take on this, Marty, for, for how they're planning on to roll or planning to roll this out in the UK? Yeah. I, well, yeah. UAE. Let's 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 talk COVID pass first. And then I will, I have UAE written in big letters here. I will remind you. Um, uh, the reason I mentioned UAE is uh-huh. you will recall that I've told you before about the ID card that yes. everybody in the UAE had. Yeah, this ID card meant that they knew what cars were registered to you, what telephone numbers and SIMs were registered to you. It included a health check because you couldn't get your visa without having uh, a full screening for hepatitis, several other communicable diseases, HIV, all sexually transmitted diseases. So every time you went for a blood test, you you were tested for all these things and you couldn't get your visa without your ID card. And so they were interlinked. So I've lived with this kind of, and it was a smart card as well. It was chipped. So I've, I've lived with this kind of, um, you know, scrutiny by government. And I think that's fine. But when it becomes biometric, information or sorry biometric fingerprint access to your account for your covid pass then i think they are pushing the limits of of freedom and decency more importantly to this yeah yeah, i agree with you more importantly to this you have a system you have a parliamentary system you have a democracy where's the consultation to you the people to be able to have a say in this where where is that I, I don't see this. It's like they're just moving ahead with it and they haven't consulted anyone about it. So wh- where's well, where's the people say on this? When, uh, when we elect people to parliament, they are elected on their policies and, the, and, and on the party. But once they get in their seat, then they're allowed to vote with their conscience. They don't have to vote 
via referendum on the conscience of their constituency. So if this was to become law and mandated, then it would have to be through an act of parliament. So at the moment, Boris has got a very strong majority and it could certainly get through the lower house on a first reading, but then it wouldn't necessarily get through the upper house, the House of Lords. So there's a long route to go before something like this becomes mandated. So again, whoever's reporting this is probably being a little bit cynical and insincere because it's not been announced on the news. It's not come out in a letter to every household. Whether it's part of a, uh, this would be something that that would need to be researched, but whether it's part of of a bill that's being pushed through at the moment, I don't know. But it's certainly something that, you know, people who are concerned about it should look into and perhaps write to their MPs and and ask questions. Uh, You know, is this going to become a mandated compulsory part of our lives? This is one of my biggest gripes with and and I don't mean any disrespect. This this is one of my biggest gripes with democracies is it's I I get that you're not consulted on or excuse me, I get that there's not a referendum by the people on everything. I mean, we're not talking about like the Switzerland version of democracy here. That's something different. But still, I mean, in America, for example, if we see something that we don't like, for example, which, well, we see a lot of things we don't like, don't we, Bruce? But Mm -hmm. if we see a piece of legislation come up or attention is brought to it, then we have a chance to contact our elected representatives before it goes to a vote. So we can actually influence them one way or another, if that makes sense, to try and say, hey, look, you know, we down here, we don't appreciate the way that this is. You're you're from this community. We elected you to Congress to represent us. And this is not something we want. So we would highly advise you to uh, to vote against something like this. And if they legislate according to how they want, as opposed to how the constituency wants, then we remove them come election time. So are you telling me that this is essentially not what's happening or it's not an option? No, we've still got these um, ways of approaching our MP. You can write to them. You can email them now. You can probably tweet to them because they've all got Twitter accounts. They also, when we're not in lockdown, hold regular surgeries where members of the public can go in and speak to them face to face. You know, sometimes you, you don't even have to have an appointment. You just sit there and wait until the MP has dealt with the last person and, and you wait in line. But they're not doing that at the moment. I'm not 100% convinced that this COVID pass has got as much momentum as the company's blurb is suggesting and any reports on it are insinuating. You know, I don't see it. I just don't see this becoming a mandated thing. Now, I might be totally wrong. And at the moment, I'm working from home. But should the company I'm working for decide that before I'm allowed to return to the office, that I've got to have a, a test, the COVID test, whether you know, or, or two tests, both the mm-hmm. antibodies test and the other one, you know, the swab, the swab. test and, and yeah, the, swab. the swab test and the blood test. And because I like my job, I'll probably have that test at their request. But that's not being worked into a DNA profile at a mitochondrial level uh, of me. It's not taking biometric information from me. It's just saying, is the antibody present or not? 
So it, it could happen. It could happen that before we go back to work, it, under normal circumstances, we may well have to be tested. But this idea of, of some kind of, well, it, it's, it's that Bruce's favorite. I've forgotten what it's called. Social scoring. Uh, social scoring, yeah. Yeah. So, well, I'm afraid we'll have to wait and see. But at the moment, I haven't got a high degree of faith that it's actually ever going to gain traction. Um, well, I hope you're I hope you're right. But I mean, do you remember in the early days of this, we were talking about the uh, the bracelets that they were beta testing in, in Hong Kong. If you're negative, then the break, you know, you get a certain bracelet. If you're positive, you get another certain bracelet. I mean, even you posed it at that point in time. You said, well, the bracelet's only as good as, as you know, as long as you don't get up and walk out of that that particular doctor's office. Again, I mean, this would almost be the same thing, right? The article is is not necessarily uh, saying that it's being rolled out and mandated to start. They're essentially just bringing attention to it, saying this is the road that they're planning to go down. I think that's more along the lines of what they were going with. Yeah, but this sounds like a bit of an iceberg to me, and nine-tenths of it are under the water. And you mentioned all those other things. You know, Mm -hmm. the fact that you've tested negative for COVID-19 means you're still a risk because you could still catch it. Or if you test positive for the antibodies means that you have had it and shouldn't be able to get it again, although that's not impossible because sometimes people do have viruses more than once. It's all those other things. If they are taking, because science has moved on that fast, that it's now possible to do this on a you know, on a massive scale to decode the DNA of each of us so they can see what recessive or problematic genes we might have and that would all be stored in inside this chip that's the bit that i'm more concerned about not whether or not i've I've had a test for covid19 right it's it's all the other stuff the nine tenths that are under the water that come with it but that's not what it's being publicized on right let's keep in mind that all of this is as the research is coming out and the numbers are, are being processed this is all a really bad case of the flu like the the fatality rate is the same as the 2018 flu season. So we're doing all this stuff, proposing all these things, doing all the lockdowns for a 2018 flu epidemic. Or are we? That that is our question. <laughs> that's isn't it? that's just it. Or that, are we? Yeah, that, you're right. That's the, that's the skepticism that we have to have because we've got lying politicians of every party. We can't trust them at face value. And we have to dig deeper every time. You know, when we were talking about Italy and Northern Italy and it having you know strong connections to the Italian fashion industry, which has been bought out by Chinese companies. Mm-hmm. But also the region, the region itself has got one of the highest pollution levels, air pollution. They've got one of the highest smoking populations. A lot of lung disease um, in Lombardy. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. So these enormous... And on top of that, they're living on top of each other. Like they have got multiple generations of families living in in the same household. Yeah. So so you've got, you know, these perfect storm conditions for a high mortality rate from a respiratory uh, disease, from from a virus that attacks your respiratory respiratory system. They were in China when, when we first started talking about this, bearing in mind that the normal... Uh, vitamin C dosage is about 90 milligrams per day. They were giving people 90 grams of vitamin C, but those that were treated 
with the vitamin C, spent less time on the ventilators, and recovered. So if a virus can be treated with vitamin C, then it's not really that serious. That, that, that sounds a bit of a dangerous thing for me to say at the moment. No, it's actually, not as deadly as, as, as it might seem if it can be treated with vitamin C. Of course, yeah. the issue is the pollutants and smoking reduces vitamin C naturally in the body. And this all came out of Mr. I'm going to try and say it again, Kawa Oeo, out of his, his paper about the fact that people who were on lockdown had less fresh food, therefore less vitamin C for certain, got less sunshine, so the vitamin D they weren't getting, and uh, just general well-being on, by being locked down. So, yeah, is it? Is it as really as deadly as we were led to believe? Because bear in mind, guys, we were all ready to say it's, you know, almost ready to say it's it's weapon. It's a weapon. It's a biological weapon. It's been designed to be this deadly. But now as things have panned out, we've seen that the mortality rates are similar to a normal year's flu virus. So, you know, what side of the fence are we going to come down on, guys? How you reference vitamin C there. Vitamin C is, is a, it's an amazing thing. It's an absolutely amazing thing. It's very antiviral in the sense of if you get a cold or you start to get, uh, you know, you start to come down with something, if you give yourself mega doses of vitamin C, you're going to kick that cold. I mean, you're, you're going to kick that whatever it is that you've got. It's going to get you out of that. And then you break out on the other side of it and you're going you're gonna to smash yourself continuously with vitamin C. Now, the thing is, I'm not going to give any advice. I mean, I take it. I take vitamin C every day. Okay. I take not only a, I take not only a vitamin, multivitamin supplement. I mean, I do this under advice of a nutritionist. So, I mean, I'm not, I'm not going to give out any of this information as to what or uh, dosage. That's for each individual to figure that out for themselves. So, because everyone's physiological makeup is different and some people can't tolerate certain things and I'm, I'm not going to get into that. However, I will say that it, it is impossible it is impossible to overdose on vitamin C. That much I do know. So the amounts that you can take, I mean, it, there, there's no real way to overdose on it. So it's it's not um, it's not that. The thing about vitamin C is is you want to get it in its purest form. You're gonna get obviously vitamin C in things like citrus fruits and and things of that nature. But vitamin C, obviously, you want to go for vitamins and minerals in the food options first, because that's going to be your best choice. However, vitamin C in its purest form is pure ascorbic acid. And the thing is, is you have to be extremely careful when you buy this stuff now, because there's only there's one source for sure. There's a possibility of a second source, though I haven't been able to figure it out. Uh, those are the only t there's only two sources in the, in the world of uh, pure ascorbic acid that you can get the rest of it, the rest of it, if you want it, comes from China. So I would be very hesitant about trusting ascorbic acid coming out of China. I would uh, I would do your own research and look into where uh, you can get the, uh, uh, the the pure ascorbic acid from Western countries uh, and give that uh, give that a try if you're interested in vitamin C. Now, essentially, in the beginning here, some of the early cases here in Germany, some of the doctors were actually experimenting with vitamin C drips. They were experimenting with it was 24,000 milligrams of vitamin C in an intravenous drip over the course of 14 hours. And they were having success with it, as in, uh, as far as treating, they, they were having success. By this process, happening in the body was releasing the free radicals, and it was attacking the virus. 
it would essentially uh, put people in a, in a sense of, uh, of recovery before it even started to get uh, to get bad. So they were having enormous amounts of success with it in the beginning. What happened with it, whether it died off or something, I don't I don't know. Rather, the uh, the experiments stopped. I, I'm not sure. But I do know that that was the initial step in what they were taking here and it was working. But I think it's extremely important, virus or not, right? Virus or not, for your own health, for your own health, eating properly, getting exercise, getting the right amount of sleep, taking vitamins and mineral supplements in conjunction with food. You have it. Well, that's the most important thing. I, I love all these people that go out there and they take all these vitamins and all these minerals and these nutrients and supplements and all this stuff, but then they don't eat. You know, they'll take a hundred pills a day, but then they won't eat anything. Get the nutrition you need from food sources. That's that's so important. Get it from food sources and then supplement with the supplement side of it, with the synthetic form. You supplement what you can't get in a daily allotment, a daily value from the food. So, for example, I don't eat fish, right? I don't like fish. I just don't like I don't like the taste of it. I know it's good for you. I don't like the taste of it. I don't like the smell of it. I don't like the texture of it. Marty, you're going to kill me. But I, I don't like fish. So what do I do? I supplement the omega-3, right? I, I supplement omega-3. So I can skip the fish portion, but I still get my omega-3 fatty acids out of the supplement. So that's how I supplement that. I drink orange juice. I squeeze my own orange juice every day. That's how I get my vitamin C. But I also add a specific amount of pure ascorbic acid to it and dissolve it in there. So that gives me an extra kick to go along with it. Plus, I also take a, um, a multivitamin every day. Zinc, magnesium, these are all important things when it comes to protecting yourself from a possible infection, regardless of a pandemic, right? The most important thing through all this has been about boosting your own immune system. We haven't heard one iota out of any of these, quote, experts about boosting your own immune system. Nothing. It's been vaccine, drugs, vaccine, drugs. That's it. That's all they care about. That's where their investments are. They're not in yeah. nutritional foods. They're not in and, vitamins and minerals. And, and ultimately, the lockdown is doing everything that you would do if you wanted to reduce your immune system, not not look after it and, and not maintain it. So back to... Uh, meanwhile, back at the ranch, Tonto disguises as a I'm tree. sorry. Yes, I'm sorry. We, we, yeah. Hey, it's all good advice, and, and, I, and I love how passionate you are about it. But we were talking about the COVID pass, weren't we? And Yeah, I, I just want people to be healthy. you got, you got to understand. I just want people to be healthy because yeah. I want people to have a healthy lifestyle so they don't end up in, in situations like that. You know, they end up in a in a hospital or end up in, you know, taking all kinds of drugs or whatever it is. If people take the proper care of themselves, which I, I think in society, in entertainment and in marketing, it's not taught of what to do. So it's um, it's up to each individual person to figure out what's best for them, working with their medical professional or their nu their nutrition people, whoever it is, to get the best advice possible. I'm not any of those things. So I can only tell you what I do for myself and I have great success with it. Yeah. But with the COVID pass, not be dismissive of, of what you were just saying, because I, I, like I said, it's really good advice and I should follow more of it myself. But I think I've just found a use for James O'Brien. Uh, and, and it's whatever side he comes down on, on the COVID pass, I will know whether I can trust it or not. So if he's 100% supportive of it, I'll know that I need to be concerned. And normally, uh, we'd all expect to get our news and information from a neutral, accurate source. Unfortunately, people, those, um, you know, accurate sources 
neutral or otherwise are very hard to come by. So the best bet is to read both sides of the media and then come up with your own thoughts on it because the truth will be somewhere in the middle all too often. No, I, I find it a little bit scary. I, and I didn't mind living with the national ID card that knew what telephones I had, where I lived, what cars I drove, what my, my uh, infectious status was. That doesn't really bother me. But it's when, and by the sounds of it, and having looked at the website for that company uh, just after you mentioned it, it looks much more down to DNA profiling rather than just seeing if you've had a dose of the flu or not. You know, that system, you, you said that you lived in a, in a system in the UAE where they, they had such things. You know, it wouldn't be, I, honestly, I don't think it would be so bad or, or we wouldn't be as skeptical if we could actually trust the people that were behind it. But in this case, with everything that we've gone through with this, that trust has been eroded. So I don't trust the people that are out there promoting it. Well, that's fair comment. But I was just thinking, if this was to be mandated and everyone had to go in for a blood test and they were testing for THC levels, had you done any hard drugs, you know, th those kinds of things. So everyone who wanted to go and claim benefits, for instance, and had to go into the, the local social welfare office, if they had to be tested, if they were found to be positive for drugs when they were tested, would they then be denied their benefits? You know, would it have that kind of impact? Could it really detect users at that kind of level? And if it, if if that was the intention, would it be a bad thing, or would it still, you know, could it be a good thing, or would it still be a bad thing? What do you two guys think? If they were using this as well to test people for drug use, if it's the government doing it, I don't like it. There is an element of, for example, welfare and that kind of thing. I would prefer knowing that they're not doing drugs, but at the same time, I don't want the government to have access to that kind of information just on a whim. You know, I don't want them to be like, oh, by the way, we need to test this uh, to see if you're not, you know, I mean, it's kind of a, you know, you kind of have to have a warrant for that. And, but if it's, if it's like a private company or something and they're like, we need to do these tests before we'll hire you or before you can use our product or what have you. Okay, fine. That, that's a private business. Uh, if I don't like it, I will go do business somewhere else. But if it's the government mandating it, it's they're holding a gun to your head saying, you're going to do this. And that's when I have a problem. Yeah. I mean, I am subject to random drug testing. Uh, everybody in the armed forces is subject to random drug testing. And in certain industries, also, people are subject to random drug testing. People claiming um, benefits and, and welfare, uh, I think some are actually uh, required to provide a urine sample when they go to sign on, because the premise is to receive benefits that you have to be fit, ready and able to to take a job to work so if you're high as a kite you're not fit and able to take a job so mm -hmm. in in some respects i think it should be mandated 
But if you're not claiming anything from the government, if you're not taking anything from the government, then I'm with you on that, that they should have no right to demand these kinds of tests and these this kind of tracing. You know, armed forces and and that those are choices you made. Those are things you chose to get into. Whereas, yeah, I mean, saying the same thing, but I, I, I just wanted to really point that out, that that's actually... A good distinction. No, no, and, you're, I, and I'm on board. Yeah, you're t- you're totally right. It, what they were choices, but in actual fact, when I joined the armed forces, they didn't do random drug testing. It wasn't part of the general day to day life. The only people who ever got tested for drugs were ones they suspected of taking them. And likewise, with my current job, the random drug testing was introduced about two years ago. So it wasn't something that I made a conscious choice, but I really don't mind because I don't do drugs. But I get high on life. That's all I need. And you guys to talk to, and I'm there. But yeah, you're right. There is that distinction. If you're taking something from the government, then the government should have the right to test you to make sure that you are not strung out on whatever and that you are at all times. You know, if an offer of a job came up and and you were high, you'd go for the interview and you'd screw it up and you'd stay on benefits. So that's not good for the government. They want more people off benefits and more people working and contributing back through via taxes to the country in general. Uh, I want to finish here on on the UAE a little bit, because I know you spent some time out there. In the initial stages, you told me that they were going through a bit of an economic downturn out there because nothing's moving. The price of oil is plunged largely due to the Saudis, or excuse me, not the, uh, uh, not the Saudis, the, um, uh, the Russians uh, and the tactic that they played flooding the oil market. That's also plunged the shale industry in the United States. So they're suffering. The tankers are not moving from ports of uh, it's in Saudi and they're not moving from ports in the UAE. And so also finance capital is not working out there either. So they're they're running into a little bit of an issue. We spoke yesterday with uh, with GP about uh, some issues that are going on in Central and South America, and so I'm assuming that the economical situation in the UAE is I don't want to say nearly about the same, but it is getting to a point of having some issues. Now the reason I bring that up is because in the UAE right now, and in Kuwait and in Qatar, right, they're talking about the number of expats yeah. leaving. They're, they're talking about the numbers uh, leaving. Also, you've got down in Oman, right? Oman, the number of expats dropped by 340,000. On top of that, you've got, uh, like I said, in the UAE and Kuwait and Qatar, the numbers leaving could be very significant in the midst of all this. They've got about 60,000, according to the report I'm looking at. In the UAE, they've got about 60,000 Pakistanis that have lost their jobs in the last couple of months, uh, even before all this started. Uh, and it's gotten even worse now under this. Now you've got people, these expats, they have a a large expat population down there working in a lot of these areas and doing a lot of things in the economy, as you as you put it, because there's only about a million uh, Emiratis. So, yeah, now they're in the process of mass exodus and leaving. What's this going to do to uh, to what's going on with the uh, the economical side of things in the UAE? If they all leave, if they well, it depends which types of expats leave, it won't have a good effect. That's for certain, and it will particularly slow the recovery once things get back to normal. Now, I don't want to insult the uh, the, the people of the UAE, but what often happens is those who do best in school wind up with the good university places quite often being educated abroad 
and then they come back to the UAE and take the best jobs in the communications companies, in the oil companies, and the the municipalities uh, that, that run each emirate. But each of those individuals has got usually one consultant working with them. So it's almost one for one. So for every high-achieving Emirati, he's got a consultant who works with him and supports him. So losing those kind of guys and girls would prove quite costly for the country because those those people are actually, in a lot of cases, really doing the jobs. They're not the consultant. They're the actual job holder. And the Emirati is the figurehead. And and that's a, a, a sad fact of life. And I don't want to insult my Emirati friends, but, you know, they have to face facts every now and again. So losing some of these high-profile, high-level consultants would affect the long-term recovery for the country from the damage that the lockdown and COVID-19 has done. Losing um, a few tens of thousands of construction workers, if no one's got any money, they're not building any new buildings. They have been building and building and building in the UAE. Dubai, probably the highest level, but even within Abu Dhabi and the smaller emirates as well, like Um Umar Quain, they're building more and more houses, more and more infrastructure projects. They don't really need it. Not if they haven't got the industry and economy that that requires that level of expansion in housing. Obviously, they've got it's quite a large country uh, when you look at the Middle East, and only one million of the seven million population of the UAE are Emirati. They want more and more Emiratis. They want their healthy, reproductive young people to produce as many new Emiratis as possible so that they can become a bigger population. I think the population in Saudi is, I I can't remember off the top of my head, but I have this figure of 20 million in, in my head. So it's considerably bigger than the UAE's population. You know, there's there's a lot more Saudis than there are Emiratis. So the Emiratis want to have more and more babies. Whilst the uh, oil business was doing so well, um, that wasn't really a problem. And it was all build, build, build uh, to accommodate this growth. But if they don't need to build, they can they can send those guys back to Pakistan. But they're, they're quite cheap to, to keep. Do you know, their daily rate of pay is still three times what they could earn back home in Pakistan or Bangladesh or Afghanistan or India. But it's actually only $5 a day. They get fed, clothed uh, and a place to sleep. And they get flown home once a year for leave if they're there long term, but most of them only there for a year stretch and then they're back to their country. But the ones that are, you know, they're there for longer than a year get one month's leave and they usually make them take it at Ramadan as well, which is quite typical. So they're, they're, they'll fly home for Ramadan and Eid and then back work 11 months straight, six days a week for $5 a day. So they're actually quite cheap to keep there. So if, the figure you said earlier on was 60000 Without Those jobs. are just the numbers of the Pakistani nationals, yes. Yeah. When, you, when you're talking 60,000 within a group of, let's say, two and a half million laborers and construction workers within mm-hmm. the UAE, that's actually not not so big, not, not such a big right. chunk. Right. But yeah, 
people have been retained but laid off work. So they're not getting paid, but they're probably still getting fed and homed uh, until the work starts again. And when the work starts again, they'll probably get paid again and taken on. So otherwise, they'll, they'll just have to repatriate them. Interesting thing, I've got a friend who works in the cruise ships and someone said, oh, yeah, he's sailing again soon. And I thought, well, no, they can't be starting holidays, you know, vacations again on cruise liners. Surely not. But it's it's they are sailing, but they're sailing to take most of the crews home because they've been stuck here all this time and they can't fly home. So they're going to sail one of the cruise ships out to the Middle East and Far East and drop these poor guys and girls back off at their countries of origin. And, and then they'll get picked up again for for working on the cruise ship, largely in the catering department and some engineers as well. So so that that's what they're doing. They're repatriate with you know, the cruise companies are are repatriating their people via a cruise ship. The UAE doesn't have cruise ships. Dubai they come into occasionally, but it's you know it's a bit dodgy bringing a cruise ship right through the Straits of Hormuz that could be given too much unwanted attention by Iranians. So they've probably kept these people in the UAE because they know when things get better, they're going to restart the construction programs. And they've got no real way of flying them, you know, getting back, getting them back to Pakistan, Bangladesh, Afghanistan and India. It's been a fascinating conversation as always. Unfortunately, we're going to have to end. Uh, is there anything else you would like to cover today before we uh, before we jump out of here? No, I'm good. Thanks, guys. I'm going a bit, okay. I'm going a bit hoarse anyway. <laughs> <laughs> it's no, it's okay. I've, I've, I, you know how it is, Marty. When I let you, I just let you go and go and go because I, I know you've got, you know, you're not here every day, so I, I let you air your week's worth of grievances before. <laughs> so when you come uh, on, uh, yeah, and I, I just have to trust you to cut all the waffle out so that I don't sound too much of an idiot. So thanks, I don't mate. cut anything. You, you, no, I, you've been, you've anything. been good to me so far. <laughs> so, okay, big day today. I, I know you're probably going to be uh, you're probably going to be jumping off here. I mean, we've had it up here in the room. We've been watching it while we've been uh, while we've been uh, broadcasting here. So, uh, I know you're probably going to watch the uh, the launch here in about an hour. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Looking forward to it. All right. Well, I tell you what. I hope we get you back soon. Don't know when that'll be. You and I will be in touch here in the next day or so. I'm sure. So, yeah. uh, I hope we get you back soon. But Marty Bruce, thank you for your time today. Okay, guys. Thanks a lot. And from all of us here, wherever you are in the world, we thank you for listening because it's all of you that listen that make this all possible. We love you, and we love freedom and independence. And together, we'll continue to fight for those in the marketplace of ideas. So we'll see all of you tomorrow.